Now, I don't know if you're a fan of water sports, but last weekend, a certain boat race took place. And what caught my eye was this caption in the Times newspaper on Monday. Here's what it said. Turbulent Tideway holds no fears for victorious Oxford. And you will never guess the reason why Oxford had won. Well, all was revealed by a jubilant Oxford roar. And here's what he said. The conditions were horrid, he said. But we coped because we had trained so hard. We had different splash guards from them. And we also had four pumps on board. So how many pumps did Cambridge have on board? None. That's why they lost. This group of highly intelligent students didn't realise that water may actually get into their boat. They must all be over 26, Norman, I think. As the Cambridge coach was later heard to say, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Now, I read that, and I asked myself this question. But what about being a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do you live a victorious Christian life? In other words, how can you avoid saying as a Christian, hindsight is a wonderful thing? Now, of course, we're not in a boat race. But let me remind you of some of the rough waters that we must navigate in life. There is the pressure of our jobs. Many of us today are working longer and longer hours. And there are always bills to pay. Last week, I received my gas bill in the post, and I couldn't believe it. And so my challenge to you today, and to myself, and to all of us, with all the busyness of life, and the demands upon us, is this. Are you living a victorious Christian life? Are you living a victorious Christian life? Dr. Alan Redpath, a former pastor, of Charlotte Chapel, writes about the importance of living such a life. And this is what he says. He writes, It has been my profound conviction for some years now that the greatest need of the Christian church is a revival of the New Testament standard of Christian living. There seems to be a very wide gulf between what we believe and how we live. A marked contrast between our position in Christ and our actual experience. So how do you live a victorious Christian life? Well, in John chapter 17, we find the answer, and it's a marvellous passage. It's here. We come to one of the mountain peaks of revelation in this gospel, our blessed Lord, the Son of God, in prayer. And so this morning... We're going to come and worship and listen in as Jesus communes with his Father in heaven. Now, if you think back to January, we focused on verses 1 to 5. And this is the bedrock for Christian living. Firstly, you'll notice in verse 3, we come to the very heart of the gospel message. The cross of our Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says this. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth 
by completing the work you gave me to do. And what was that glorious work? It was to leave the splendour of heaven, to come and die on a cross, so that we could be reconciled with our Creator. You see, there is a heaven to gain, and there is a hell to shun. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. And from the cross of Christ, in verse 5, you'll notice the spotlight of it is now taken to the glorification of Christ. Listen to Jesus' prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Just think what that involved. The divine one, the all-creating one, became the human one, became the crucified one. And soon he'll return to his father's side as the glorified one. And so in verses 6 to 19, what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays for his disciples, an ordinary bunch of guys who would become the seeds of the worldwide church. And it's here in this glorious prayer that Jesus gives us three secrets of what it means to live a victorious Christian life. And firstly, it means becoming Christ's pilgrim. Becoming Christ's pilgrim. Now, something I love doing is going to Keswick for the convention, not for the good weather. And last week, I received the new Keswick brochure. And someone who is due to be speaking this year at the convention is Nigel Lee. But sadly, Nigel has cancer, terminal cancer. And this former missionary with OM wrote a message, and I thought it was tremendous. And let me read you what Nigel Lee wrote. Here's what he says. Dear Keswick friends, I'm so sorry not to be with you this year for week three. I was greatly looking forward to it. Keswick has meant much to me over the years. I think particularly of heartfelt worship in the presence of good friends, a deep unity in Christ with people who are different, the glory of the Lord Jesus being unveiled before our eyes, a fresh commitment to his service forever. Now here's what he says. The doctors have told me that I should expect before the convention begins to be in the one place where these four shadows have given way to reality. Though they didn't quite put it that way, I wish they could have done. I want to express huge thanks to all those who have prayed for me and my family during recent days. Our trials have included much glory through the kindness of the Lord. And he writes, the best is yet to come. That's tremendous. And I wonder, if you or I were Nigel, if we had terminal cancer, what message we would write down? Could you sit down and write, and the best is yet to come? I wonder if you know that assurance in your own life this morning. For you see, if you become Christ's pilgrim, you can. And in John chapter 17, we find out what it means to live in eternal victory. Because, friends, a Christian has been given a new home. A new home. Verse 6. Notice what Jesus prays. 
I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now let's think about what that means. At the start of this year, we launched 40 Days of Purpose. And that involved trying to allocate over 400 people to different fellowship groups. And there were groups in Kerstorfin, Morningside, Barnton, Leith, and so on. And if you all lived in the same street, it would be so much easier. So please bear that in mind for the next time. But if you're a Christian, listen to what Jesus says here as he prays for his disciples. He says to you this morning, that's not your true home. No, I have rescued you out of the world. And Nigel Lee knows that. The best is yet to come. Why? Because he knows where he's going. He's going home. He's going to that celestial city, as John Bunyan puts it in Pilgrim's Progress. To the church in Colossae, the Apostle Paul writes this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, it's sometimes good to stop and to ask yourself, do I really believe what I believe? Is that Irish? Sorry if you're Irish. Do I really believe what I believe? Yes, that my true home is with Jesus in the heavenly city. Do I really believe that? Now here's how you can test yourself. Ask yourself this. What is my attitude to my job? To my degree? To my car? To my CD player? To my investments? And where I live? Because you see, for someone living a victorious Christian life, their perspective will be wonderfully transformed. In a book by Charles Swindle, I found this poem. I thought it was great. Here's what it says. Think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven. Of taking hold of a hand and finding it God's hand. Of breathing a new air and finding it immortality. Of passing from storm to tempest to an unknown calm. Of waking up and finding it home. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Are you looking forward to that? I am. But we're not quite there yet. And so this takes us to our second point. Living a victorious Christian life not only means becoming Christ's pilgrim, it also means embracing Christ's protection. Embracing Christ's protection. And if you look at verse 14, you'll notice why we find this imperative. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
In other words, a Christian lives on a battlefield. It is war. So let me give you some words of counsel from Sir Winston Churchill. He knew a lot about war. Here's what Sir Winston Churchill said. He said, Never, never, never believe any war will be smooth and easy, or that anyone who embarks on this strange voyage can measure the tides and hurricanes he will encounter. And you can feel the sting of that, the sting of it, in your daily life. I wonder if you've mentioned the name of Jesus to a colleague at work and felt the backlash. Or have you stood up for God's values in the office and felt ostracized as a result? This is a battle you have joined, folks. You see, when you become a Christian, you become embroiled in this age-old struggle between God and Satan, between the powers of hell and the kingdom of God. And in this great battle, you are given protection. And there are two aspects of Christ's protection to notice here. Firstly, protection is found in a unique name. Verse 11. Let's read verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word protect here means to keep. And so far, Jesus has kept God's people on earth by the power of his name. Now, in the Bible, God's name encapsulates not only the manifestation of his character, but also his might. You may know the children's song. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. It's like the actions. It's just for you. Taken from Proverbs chapter 18. And it's here we find a summons to prayer for protection. And I want to share with you here a story I heard about prayer. It's an amazing story. And it was about a medical missionary in Africa. There's a picture of it. And they were on furlough. And they gave their support to the home church. Now, listen to this. It's incredible. I'm reading what they said. They said, While serving at a small field hospital in Africa, I travelled every two weeks by bicycle through the jungle to a nearby city for supplies. This required camping overnight halfway. Now, on one of these trips, I saw two men fighting in the city. One was seriously injured, So I treated him and witnessed to him of the Lord Jesus Christ. I then returned home without incident. Upon arriving in the city several weeks later, I was approached by the man I had treated earlier. He told me he had known that I carried money and medicine. And he said, some friends and I followed you into the jungle knowing you would camp overnight. We waited for you to go to sleep and plan to kill you and take your money and drugs. Just as we were about to move into your campsite, we saw that you were surrounded by 26 armed guards. Now at this point, during the story, one of the men in the church jumped up and asked the missionary, can you tell me the exact date when this happened? Now the missionary thought for a while and he recalled the exact date. 
Now, here's how the man in that church replied. On that night in Africa, it was morning here. I was was preparing to play golf. As I put my bags in the car, I felt the Lord leading me to pray for you. In fact, the urging was so strong that I called the men of this church together to pray for you. Will all those men who met with me please stand? And so all the men who met to pray that day stood. And there were 26 of them. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, how important is prayer to you? How important is prayer to this church, Charlotte Chapel? Is it a number one priority? Or does life just become too busy? Let me quote you from Dorn Carson about the importance of praying for protection. And he says this. The spiritual dimensions of this prayer of Jesus are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, and even our games, than we do praying about the danger of the evil one. And secondly, protection is found in a united church. Now if you cast your eye at verse 11 again, Jesus prays that his disciples may be united. He prays this, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be, may be one as we are one. Now, a few years ago, I was on my first overseas mission. I was with the WEM, and I joined an international team in Romania. And it's amazing the questions that you ask people when you meet them for the first time. Questions like, do people still wear kilts in Scotland? What does food taste like in Finland? And are you French? Somebody asked me, are you French? I don't know why. But here are some questions we didn't ask each other. Do you have drums at your church? What denomination are you from? What Bible translation do you read from? Are you a Calvinist or Arminianist? Do you raise your hands in corporate worship? And do you wear a shirt and a tie to a Sunday service? Why? Because these are all secondary issues. What is it that unites us? Our love for Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's our common bond. Protection is found in a united church. And so victorious Christian living, it means becoming Christ's pilgrim. It means embracing Christ's protection. And finally, it means reflecting Christ's glory. Reflecting Christ's glory. And here we come to the focal point of this magnificent prayer. If you look at verse 17, notice what Jesus prays. He prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now there are three questions we can ask ourselves here. Question number one, where are we sent? Number two, how are we sent? And number three, why 
are we sent? Okay? And so question number one, where are we sent? We are sent into the world. But let me tell you what happens. Many Christians today have a so-called sacred-secular divide. Okay? And let me tell you how you can spot that. It's the belief that some things are important to God, such as church, prayer meetings, committee meetings, elders meetings, social action, Christianity explored, building blocks, and so on. But the other activities that you're involved in, where you spend most of your time, are not important to God, such as work, school, university, college, family, and your leisure time. And yet it's there that God has sent us. Mark Green writes this about the secular, sacred divide. Listen to what he says, Mark Green. The challenge to the contemporary church is not only how to fulfill our mission to the lost, but also how to help the found grow. And the success of one is dependent on the other. You cannot do mission without maturing in the process. And you cannot mature in Christ without being involved, that's a key word, involved in God's mission to transform people and culture. So where are we sent? We are sent into the world. And the question number two, how are we sent? Now let me illustrate this. I love going backpacking, okay? Just going away for lonely tra- planet travel guides and backpacking. And one of the conditions for backpacking is that you travel light. You see, there is no space in my rucksack for my duvet cover, my Greek concordance, and my microwave. If I am to go backpacking, I must adhere to certain conditions. So what are the conditions in being sent into the world? Well, if you look at verse 17, you'll find the answer. We are to be sanctified. Now, sanctified, the word sanctified, it comes from a Hebrew word for separate. And it's a word used to describe God and his holiness. He is transcendent, he is distinct, and he is separate from his creation. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, if you recall, the angels cry in God's presence, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the point is this, because God is holy, derivatively, Jesus desires that holiness, that distinctiveness for a believer. And now finally, question number three. Why are we sent? And it's here we come to a statement in verse 10 that has huge importance for every Christian. And it's a key statement of this prayer. And in particular, it goes to the very heart of our motivation in living for Christ. So what is this statement? Well, if you look at verse 10... We read this. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Bruce Milne, the pastor theologian, comments helpfully here. What a marvelous incentive to living for Christ this is, that he who has need of nothing may yet be glorified through our obedience and service. Okay? So let's stop there and let's think how that applies to us. 
Charlotte Chapel currently helps support around 40 missionaries in 10 different countries all over the world. Now think about this question. Think about it again. Why do we do that? And why do we witness to our colleagues at work? And why do we invite our friends to our Easter service? In other words, why are we sent? Well, we'd all probably say, we are obeying our commandments, the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. And of course, that's correct. Another reason is compassion for people living without Christ. We long for people to find in Jesus what we have found. But notice, Jesus gives us here, in verse 10, another answer, which in many ways is the highest motivation of all. It's a concern for the glory and honour of Christ. And glory has come to me through them. And that is the motivation, and it's the secret of living a victorious Christian life. And so as we close, let me ask you a final question. A personal question. Are you living in defeat? Or are you living in victory? Are you living in defeat? Or are you living in victory? We commenced this morning by thinking about the Cambridge boat team. Living in defeat. And thinking hindsight is a wonderful thing. And we thought about Nigel Lee. Living in victory, even with terminal cancer, he can say with complete assurance, and the best is yet to come. My prayer this morning is that everyone here can honestly say, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Now, maybe you're sitting thinking, I would love to become Christ's pilgrim. I would love to know that victory in my own life. But how do I start? Well, this morning, I'm going to read a prayer from a booklet called Journey into Life. And you'll find this in the stairwells. If you want to respond this morning, you can pray this prayer quietly after me. And it's also on the screen behind me. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I know I have sinned in my thoughts, words, and actions. There are so many good things I have not done. There are so many sinful things I have done. I am sorry for my sins and turn from everything I know to be wrong. You gave your life upon the cross for me. Gratefully, I give my life back to you. Now I ask you to come into my life. Come in as my saviour to cleanse me. Come in as my Lord to control me. And I will serve you. 
all the remaining years of my life in complete obedience. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the precious gift of eternal life, which is offered to each one of us. Thank you that Jesus has conquered sin and death. The tomb is empty and Jesus has triumphed. Father, we are so grateful this morning that you invite us to share in that glorious victory forever. Lord, if someone has responded this morning to you, give them the courage, we ask, to tell someone about that great step they've taken. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.